For December 28th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Starting around 2007, fracking stemmed the long decline of U.S. oil production and nearly sent production to new all-time highs. According to statistics from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, U.S. crude oil production hit 9.6 million barrels a day in April 2015, just shy of the 9.9 million barrels a day peak set way back in 1970. But thanks to the crash in oil prices that started in mid-2014, U.S. oil production has since fallen about 1 million barrels a day since the April 2015 peak. Fracking also pushed total U.S. natural gas production to a new all-time high at 82 billion cubic feet per day in July 2015, after which it declined to around 79 billion cubic feet per day as of August 2016, the latest month for which EIA data is available. U.S. shale gas production, specifically, has fallen by 4.7% since it peaked early this year, although it is too early to say if that will prove to be an enduring peak or if it might be exceeded in the future. And that's what we hope to discover in this episode. But first, a bit more context. On the way up, when oil and gas production was setting new recent records, most energy pundits were eager to highlight the industry's success because it's a feel-good story that writers like to write and readers like to read. And it makes advertisers happy. Not just the companies that actually produce the stuff, but the legion of bankers and analysts who enabled the fracking revolution by helping producers raise mountains of debt. Although it's not a widely known fact, it is a fact that almost none of the drilling in the fracking phenomenon was paid for out of income or cash stockpiles. 
Debt is what really made the fracking revolution possible, and it couldn't have been raised without the touts who kept policymakers and investors salivating over a piece of the pie. And boy, did those touts tout. For the better part of a decade, thousands of headlines blared that fracking would make the U.S. energy independent or had already made it so, that we would be the world's number one producer of crude oil, that new oil and gas production would fundamentally restore the U.S. balance of trade, that frackers would depose Saudi Arabia as the world's swing producer, able to effectively control the global price of oil by willfully ramping production up and down, and so on and so on. None of those things were remotely true then, and they're certainly not true now. But hey, we had a lot of fun reading those stories and investing our savings in the sector, didn't we, kids? But there are also a few skeptics who called into question the worst exaggerations of the industry and the increasingly bullish projections of agencies like the EIA. They relied on hard data to make their case, not mere hyperbole designed to stroke the national ego, and they showed why those claims could not be true. Naturally, they were by and large ignored. One of those skeptics, however, was difficult to ignore because his work was painstaking, grounded in the best available data, and highly transparent. David Hughes is an earth scientist who studied the energy resources of Canada for four decades, including 32 years with the Geological Survey of Canada as a scientist and research manager. Over the course of his career, he's led projects to assess Canada's coal and unconventional gas resources. And over the past decade, Hughes has researched, published, and lectured widely on global energy and sustainability issues in North America and internationally, publishing numerous reports, production projections, and debunkings of outlandishly optimistic official forecasts. With the support of the U.S.-based Post Carbon Institute, he published a series of papers which attempted to critically assess the true potential for unconventional oil and gas, including Drill Baby Drill in 2013, which examined the prospects for unconventional oil and gas in the United States, Drilling California in 2013, which critically examined the EIA's estimates of technically recoverable tight oil in the Monterey Shale, after which the EIA wrote down its resource estimate for the Monterey by 96%, and Drilling Deeper in 2014, which challenged the U.S. Department of Energy's expectation of a long-term domestic oil and natural gas abundance with an in-depth assessment of all drilling and production data from the major shale plays through mid-2014. I covered several of those reports in my previous career as an energy journalist, and I'll link to all of the above in the show notes. Hughes has a pair of new reports for Post Carbon Institute titled Tight Oil Reality Check 2016 and Shale Gas Reality Check 2016. The reports compare EIA's fracking forecasts for tight oil and shale gas production from the Annual Energy Outlook 2016, which we'll refer to by its acronym AEO 2016, to the forecast from AEO 2014 and 2015, as well as to Hughes' own forecasts from his aforementioned reports. Now, I'm going to ignore EIA's occasional protestations that its estimates for future production are projections and not forecasts. Even EIA occasionally calls them forecasts. And although this might seem like an awfully narrow subject for a podcast, I assure you that once you finish this episode, you'll know far more about fracking than you did before, and maybe more than you ever wanted to know. Dave is an old friend and an analyst whose work I regard very highly, and it's a great pleasure to finally have him on the show. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Dave, to the Energy Transition Show. Good to be here, Chris. So let's dive right into your new shale gas report, and then we can turn to the tight oil report after that. So in AEO 2016, 
EIA assumes that total U.S. gas production will actually begin to grow strongly starting next year, 2017, even though the rate of drilling new wells has fallen 37% from the 2014 peak. And it forecasts that tight oil and shale gas production will collectively grow 88% from 2014 levels to all-time highs by 2040, while drilling rates actually remain below 2014 levels. So what's the justification that EIA gives for this increase in production without a corresponding increase in drilling? And what's your view of that? Well, the EIA doesn't give any justification for that. Typically, when they publish an AEO, it's released in April. In this case, the final release came out in September. And they don't publish assumptions until months later, so they still haven't published the assumptions that are behind the AEO 2016 yet. So what I did in my review was looked at the assumptions for the AEO 2015 report, which were published last September. You know, I suspect if I was kind of looking under the covers that they're assuming there's going to be continued increase in technology increasing the productivity of wells. But really, you know, if you look back at the actual technically recoverable resources that are in their 2015 assumptions, it really doesn't make any sense. You know, on a play level, they're counting on recovering more gas and oil than actually exists in many of those plays. Okay. Well, if they're not publishing their assumptions, that makes it pretty difficult to do a critical evaluation of what their forecast is. Are they planning to publish the assumptions that underlie the 2016 forecast? Oh, they will eventually. It's just a question of when. You know, the EIA doesn't release the play level forecast unless you ask for them. Okay. And there's a nice lady in the EIA that has sent me them every year when asked. I see. And in October, she said the assumptions would be published in October. I just checked this morning and they're still not out yet. Okay. Yeah, maybe they radically ramped up the, their assumptions in, in what's recoverable. I don't know. Or maybe they see, you know, high prices being a driver here. But as you point out, EIA sees this remarkable production growth happening with only a modest increase in natural gas prices from around $2.80 per million BTU today to around $5 from 2025 all the way out through 2040. And, you know, first of all, that seems like a pretty strange price scenario to me. I mean, it makes sense that gas prices would get back to around 5 bucks because that's a price that can support a fair amount of shale gas production, unlike the prices we have today. But then holding it steady around $5 for the next 15 years, when a glance at the history of gas prices shows it's never that stable, seems highly unlikely to me. Yeah, it does to me too, especially when you look at the intrinsics of the plays themselves. You know, good shale gas plays are not found everywhere. You know, for example, three-quarters of the production in AU 2016 it comes from just five plays. So, um, yeah, that price scenario doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
Okay, so in the report, you explain that the industry has dealt with the low prices we've had for the past two years in two main ways. One is high grading, which means focusing drilling on the most productive parts of the plays, the so-called sweet spots. And two, by applying more aggressive technology, such as increasing the length of lateral wells, using far more fracking fluid during fracking operations, and using many times more propant, which is the sand or other small particles that hold the fractures open once the rock has been fracked. But you claim that while these practices have improved the production of some individual wells, because each well can now drain more of the reservoir, they also reduce the number of locations available to drill and simply exhaust a play more quickly at a lower cost without substantially increasing the ultimate recovery from the play. So what evidence is there to support this claim? Have we actually reached these limits in some plays where it doesn't make sense to drill a new lateral? Well, if you look at, at the play as a whole, and you know there's several different reports out there, you know, the story looks pretty good. If you look at the average productivity of, of wells drilled in each year over time, the average has gone up in most plays. And that's a, a function of those two things that you mentioned. You know, early on in a shale play, people are drilling everywhere. And as the sweet spots become delineated, they focus their efforts on the most economic parts of the play. And that's what's happening. Also, the technology has been getting better. But if you look at a recent report by IHS, you know, their thinking is that about two-thirds of the increase in well productivity is due to high-grading sweet spots. And one-third is due to technology getting better. And if you disaggregate the place, so if you look at them by county, you know, for example, if you take a play like the Barnett, for example, which is really where shale gas got started, and you look at a county like Tarrant, which is really in the core of the sweet spot, you can see that the average well quality there has started to decline. The same thing in the sweet spots of the Bakken, for example, and the Eagle Ford. And so that's indicating that, you know, the technology is not producing any more increases in well productivity. In fact, wells are, are becoming so closely spaced together that they're beginning to interfere with one another. And so productivity is beginning to fall. I've seen that in the best county in the Marcellus, in the Bakken, Eagle Ford, and the Barnett. You know, this is just a fact of life, is how those plays are going to evolve over time. So what is the actual specific evidence that you've got some communication between these laterals that it doesn't make sense to drill another one in between them? Basically, the new wells have a lower quality, you know, lower productivity than the older wells. Hmm. So that would indicate to me that there could be interference or it could simply be that they're drilling in lower quality parts of a particular county. Okay. So for those who aren't experts in shale gas, we should probably explain a little bit here about the typical performance of shale gas wells and how quickly their production declines once they start producing. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of that? Right. Well, you know, shale gas really got started with the combination of horizontal drilling and high-volume hydraulic fracturing that evolved basically starting in the late 90s in the Barnett shale of Texas, and it's kept on evolving over time. But typically, the wells decline quite quickly. You know, for example, 
in the back and first year declines are in the order of 65 to 70%. And three year declines are typically between 75 and 85% in most plays. So if you look at, you know, all the wells drilled up to a certain point in time and, and you measure the, the field decline, field decline is a combination of older wells that are declining more slowly and new wells that are declining very quickly. The field decline in a play like the Haynesville, for example, is about 45% in the first year, which means you have to drill enough wells to replace 45% of production just to keep production flat. And that's pretty typical in most shale plays. Okay, so 45% in the first year is fairly typical for shale gas well? Well, that's for a shale gas play. Okay. Individual wells decline more quickly in the first year. That's right. You're saying uh, like 85%? Eight, yeah, 75 to 85% over the first three years. Okay. But the bulk of that decline is in, in year one. Okay. No, 65 or 70% in year one is not atypical. Okay. So, yeah, this phenomenon of having to drill a, a, an increasing number of wells to compensate for the decline of old wells has been compared to a treadmill or to the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland where you have to run faster all the time just to stay in place. But at the same time, when the production from old wells falls below a certain level, they'll be shut in. So there's also a limit to how many new wells you have to drill to maintain overall production. You don't always have this ever accumulating decline rate behind you. So do we have the data yet to know what the equilibrium level is between new well production and declining older wells and well retirements? Maybe for older plays like the Barnett and the Haynesville? Yeah, if you look at the Barnett, which is where it really all got started, there's been just over 20,000 wells drilled and there's only about 16,000 producing at this point. So 4,000 of those wells have been shut in. You know, the typical thinking is 25 or 30 year well life. However, that's going to vary quite a bit. And it's looking in the Barnett, for example, that well life may be more like, you know, 10 to 15 years. Most of these plays aren't old enough. So we've pretty seen you know, the full life cycle of a well play out. Right. It, again, it depends. You know, the Barnett has declined quite a bit in terms of production from its peak. So the lower the, the field production, the fewer the number of wells that, that you need to drill per year. But for example, the Barnett, it probably requires now about 400 wells per year to stay flat. Okay. If you look at a play like the Eagle Ford, they were drilling 3,600 wells per year when it peaked. And drilling is now down to, I don't know, maybe half of that. But production is falling like a rock. Hmm. You know, production in the Eagle Ford is down 31% from peak. So this concept of how many wells do you have to drill to stay flat is really sort of a fiction anyway because we're not staying flat in, in, in these plays. Exactly. And right now, because of the price of gas and oil for that matter, the plays are being high graded. So we're really drilling the most economic parts right. as we speak. And what's left after that is lower productivity rock. So, you know, you may have to drill two wells in five years time to get the, 
production that one well would give you today. Right. Which means that prices are going to have to go up. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was thinking about this. You know, given the decline of the existing wells, doesn't EIA's remarkably stable price forecast, which again shows gas prices holding steady for 15 years straight, um, imply that there won't be any problem drilling new wells that are just as good and profitable as the old wells? Because if there were a problem, for example, if you saturated the sweet spots and had to move off to the less profitable periphery of the place, then you'd expect that prices would have to go higher over time to keep drilling enough more costly, less productive wells in order to push the total production up as their forecast shows. Exactly. And, you know, you can already see that if, if you disaggregate the place by county. You can see the well productivity starting to fall, which means that, you know, it's getting to the law of diminishing returns in those sweet spot counties. And, uh, you know, there's still quite a few places to drill on some of those places, like the back and an Eagle Ford. But, you know, the writing's on the wall. You know, barring some miraculous technology that will allow, you know, even more technological improvement. But basically, geology wins over technology every time. It's just uh, a fact of Mother Nature. Well, if that's the case, that we can see in certain counties that the well quality is falling, then Clearly, one of the two things must be wrong here. Either their flat gas price forecast for 15 years can't be right, or if that is right, they can't have this increasing production that they're forecasting, that they can't have those two things at the same time. No, exactly. Okay. So throughout the report, you actually show how EIA's forecast for production in most of the shale gas plays increased really substantially from AEO 2015 to AEO 2016 but without any apparent justification for doing so. And you, you conclude the report with some very pointed questions. So let's talk about some of those. First, you ask why the forecast for production from these plays grew so much between AEO 2015 and AEO 2016 when the play fundamentals have hardly changed. Uh, what are some of those fundamentals that you're talking about there? We've talked about some of them, but basically the well productivity by by county has changed a little bit because of technology, but you know, as you said earlier, better technology means longer horizontal laterals, more propens. So each well is basically draining a larger part of the, of the reservoir. You know, that's why productivity is going up, but then basically you, you reduce the number of locations that you have to drill. So even though you do get it, more quickly and at a lower cost, we don't really increase the ultimate recoverable resource very much. So the geological fundamentals are what I, I measured in my drilling deeper report in order to come up with, with the forecast of future production. And basically that's the number of locations in a play. So if you look at the aerial extent of a play and, and assume four or six or eight wells per square mile, you can determine the number of available locations, and then you measure the, the well productivity, the average well productivity by county, and assume that, you know, the nature of industry is to drill the best locations first, and then proceed into the, the lower quality parts of the play. And, you know, when I, I did drilling deeper, I actually made several forecasts based on 
on different scenarios of drilling rates. Because future production is wholly a function of how fast you drill and well quality. I didn't try to forecast price. You know, we've seen what price forecasts look like in terms of accuracy over time. <laughs> uh, so my forecasts are basically based on drilling rate and well quality. But you didn't see the justification in AEO 2016 for these significantly increased forecasts from EIA over the last couple of years' forecasts that they put out. No. You know, because they only publish the overall aggregate forecast, that's what most people see. They don't actually see the play-by-play forecast, which is what I looked at. You know, I took apart their overall forecast by play. And if you do that, you see some pretty... uh, crazily optimistic projections going on, in my view. Okay, so let's dig into that. So first, um, I'm going to try to explain uh, a couple of terms here, just in case some listeners may not be familiar with them. So the first is technically recoverable resources, which means an amount of oil and gas that is thought to exist, which can be recovered with today's technology, but without regard for price or profitability. And there might be an amount of proved technically recoverable resources, meaning that at least the resources has been found by a drill bit. And then there might be a much larger estimate of unproved technically recoverable resources, which is really usually just a mathematical probability of resources that haven't actually been found by a drill bit. And then there's proved reserves, which means an estimate of how much oil and gas is known to exist and is thought to be producible at a profit at current prices. So it's only the proved reserves quality that we should really be able to count on producing in most cases. Now, in your report, you show how in AEO 2016, EIA sees production from the Marcellus, the the largest of the natural gas plays, rising 48% above current levels, ultimately producing 47% more gas than the EIA's own estimate of unproved, technically recoverable resources. And in the Haynesville play, AEO 2016 forecasts the production will more than double from current levels, with the Haynesville ultimately producing 28% more gas than the EIA's estimate of unproved resources. And in the Barnett, whose production peaked way back in 2011, as you said, and has been declining ever since, They see production suddenly reversing course and that it's going to recover 145% more unproved resources than the EIA estimates even exist and will end at a a near all-time high production level in in 2040. I mean, these are very strange things to forecast, to say the least. What is going on here? I wish I knew. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, you look at at the 2040 production forecast for the plays that you just mentioned there. And that would imply that not only do you recover 145% more resource than they think exists in a play like the Barnett, but because production is so high when you exit 2040, they're implying that there's still, you know, vast amounts of recoverable resource left after that. Right. Because production doesn't just fall off a cliff. There's a tail. Right. And, you know, my thinking, just the way the geology is distributed for these places is that, you know, you, you won't have a, a bell-shaped curve of production. It will have a, a long tail, you know, so steep, steep ramp up to peak and then a long tail. 
So an asymmetric production profile. Hmm. But having a, a radical ramp up at low prices, you know, when we've already seen some of the top counties exhibit declining well quality, it really doesn't fit with the fundamentals in my view. I just don't understand how they could be forecasting production that's so much greater than their own estimate of unproved resources. I mean, surely they're aware that there's a disconnect there. I mean, do we have to assume that they're going to come out with some new assessment of larger unproved resources that will then sort of match up with this new production forecast? Or, I mean, I don't understand how they even get there. Yeah. I suspect that that's what they will do. You know, very few people actually get the spreadsheet of the play-by-play forecasts, and without that, you can't tell, you know, what's going on in these forecasts. Mm. So I make a point of doing that each year, and that's the the subject of these reports, is to kind of look at the credibility of this. Right. But the U.S. government, I think, is into, you know, good news stories. You know, energy independence, Saudi America, we can build LNG export terminals and the price of gas is going to be cheap, you know, for the foreseeable future. You know, that's sort of the good news that that makes, you know, everybody in Washington happy. Yeah. But what is really going to happen when you dig into the geology is what I've been looking at. Okay. So I think the bottom line on this report is your final question. How can overall shale gas production increase by 31% in AEO 2016 compared to AEO 2015, while assuming the gas prices are 20% lower over the 2015 to 2040 period? I mean, is this, as you say, sort of an expression of a belief that future technology will produce more gas in the future at lower prices than it does today? I suspect it is. You know, I, I can't really think of any other explanation for it. I mean, they're not offering an explanation. Well, unless, you know, their assumptions for AEO 2016 are published sometime soon, you know, maybe there'll be some sort of an explanation in there. I'm, you know, really looking forward to it, but I couldn't wait. You know, I wanted to get these reports out. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a 2016 report and 2016 is almost over, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is just a head shaker here. Uh, I can understand why you're taking the effort to look at this play-by-play, because clearly something is amiss here. I mean, throughout the report, you not only compare the forecasts for each play from AEO 2016 to AEO 2015 and AEO 2014, but you also compare their forecast to your own most likely forecasts from your 2014 Drilling Deeper report. And you compare all of those to the actual data that we now have for the two years since you wrote it. So on the whole, how would you rate your own forecasts? Were they reasonably accurate and were they better or worse than EIAs? Well, I'm obviously biased, but, <laughs> I, you know, in actual fact, I was a little bit too optimistic huh. in 2014 for some of those plays. And your forecasts were lower I, than theirs. And my forecasts were lower than theirs. Yeah. You know, what I didn't project was the extreme drop in drilling rate and rate counts. So they dropped more than my most likely drilling rate, and therefore production was below my most likely forecast. So, you know, in general, I was closer than the EIA, but I was still a little optimistic on some of them. 
I guess we have to assume that that was because neither you nor EIA expected this massive price drop that started in the middle of 2014, right around the time you were writing that report. Like nobody knew that prices were going to fall as far as they did, as rapidly as they did, and then stay down for two years. Yeah, that report was basically, it was wrapped up almost exactly at the time that the world price of oil collapsed. Uh So that wasn't foreseen. Yeah. Okay. So I, again, I guess you can be forgiven for being overly optimistic in your drilling forecast because your forecast was, as you said earlier, it was based on an expectation of some drilling rate. It was not based on a price forecast. EIA's forecasts presumably were based, or at least within the context of their price forecast, but they didn't see prices crashing either. No, they didn't. Yeah, okay. So let's turn to your companion report, Tight Oil Reality Check 2016. As with the shale gas report, it shows that EIA's forecasts for tight oil production have continued to go up in recent years. But back in October 2014, when you wrote your Drilling Deeper report, you thought EIA's forecast was already too high, even back then. And you found that EIA's estimate of recovery from the Bakken and Eagle Ford plays in AEO 2014 was 42% higher than your most likely drilling scenario. But now you say that EIA's estimate in AEO 2015 is 91% higher than yours, and its estimate in AEO 2016 is 115% higher. So what's the deal? I mean, are, are you just failing to keep up with the times here or what? Well, if you look at those two plays, the Bakken and Eagle Ford, actually the EIA did a, quite a reasonable job, I thought, in the Eagle Ford. You know, there was a paper that was published along with AEO 2014 that looked fairly similar to my methodology. They, they took it apart by county and looked at well quality by county, which is the way I do it. And actually their forecast for the Eagle Ford has been going down in successive years. And now it's down almost to mine, <laughs> which I published in 2014. The Bakken, on the other hand, has just been wildly increasing. This latest year, AEO 2016, they've increased recovery by 2040 to a little over 18 billion barrels. That's close to triple. So, you know, the back end may be down now. I think it's down about 18% from its December 2014 peak. But they forecast a massive resurrection to somewhere over double the 2014 peak. And, you know, again, exiting 2040 at very high production levels. So I really scratched my head about that. I looked into the AEO 2015 assumptions, and they're assuming a huge resource from the Three Forks. A lot of the production is out of the middle back and some out of the Three Forks in the top counties. But there's a huge area of three forks that hasn't been drilled that they're assuming a vast resource from. So, you know, if you drilled over a hundred thousand wells and they turned out to be productive, you know, maybe (laughs) that's, that's what they're thinking. But the real problem in those two plays is the backup, you know, what they did to that this year, not the Eagle Ford. Right. So just to review the data here in in a little detail, you note in your report that only two plays in the Permian Basin 
the sprayberry and the wolf camp, are not below their production peaks already. All the other tight oil plays peaked and declined at various points in the past two years. The two largest plays, the Bakken and the Eagle Ford, which made up about half of all tight oil production uh, around the middle of this year, actually peaked in March of 2015. The Bakken is now 18% down from its peak, as you said, and the Eagle Ford is down 31% from its peak. But in AEO 2016, EIA forecasts a remarkable turnaround for the Bakken, rising just under 1 million barrels a day in 2018 to nearly 2.5 million barrels a day by 2033. But you see a gradual decline from 2015 onward. So there's this big divergence now between your model and theirs. And for the Eagle Ford, AEO 2016 forecasts a long, shallow decline, as you were saying, that long tail, with production gradually falling from around a million barrels a day today to about three quarters of a million barrels a day by 2040. But you see a much more symmetrical bell curve of production for the Eagle Ford, where it just falls to under half a million barrels a day at that point and has a total recovery of about 1.7 billion barrels less than EIA does. So what do you think accounts for the discrepancy between your model and theirs? I mean, your methodology is very transparent. You look at the rate of drilling, the number of potential wells that can be drilled, how productive those wells will be, and the rate at which those wells in in that field decline. I guess I don't know if EIA actually is equally transparent about all those factors that go into its modeling. I mean, what's the difference between your methodology and theirs to produce these kinds of divergent forecasts? Well, if you look at my forecast published in 2014, you'll see that I estimated that drilling rates would be quite a bit higher than they actually turned out to be. You know, hence I overestimated the near-term production in Eagle Fort. So I assumed drilling rates over 3,500 wells per year declining gradually into the future. But in fact, drilling rates are down below 1,800 wells per year right now. So production fell quite a lot quicker than I expected, but that saves drilling locations for later. So if I was going to redo that, you know, I would correct the near term, uh, make it match existing production and increase the longer term forecast. Because, you know, you can drill locations now or you can drill them later. And it, it looks like drilling them later is what's going to happen in the Eagle Ford. So actually the EIA's forecast, you know, is a little optimistic in my view, but it's reasonable projecting a higher production further out. And I do the same thing, you know, if I was redoing the Eagle Ford in light of what's happened. For the Eagle Ford, yes, but do you think their forecast for the Bakken is realistic, going from a million barrels a day in 2018 to 2.5 by 2033? I think it's wildly optimistic. The Eagle Ford was not too bad, but they really made up for it in the Bakken. You know, what would drilling rates have to be in order to double production from the peak rate? You know, peak rate, I think they were drilling somewhere around 1,200 wells a year, maybe a little more than that. It's off the top of my head. So to double, you know, not only are you drilling in lower quality rock, so you need more wells in the future for every well you're drilling today. To get that much production, you probably have to be 
you know, looking at four to 5,000 wells per year in order to get there. And you'd run out of available locations way before you ever reach 2040. And production would go into terminal decline. Well, not only that, I mean, to reach that kind of drilling rate, you'd have to just have such a mobilization of rigs and personnel and trucks to haul water and sand and fracking fluid and everything else. I mean, you, you would almost certainly have, at least in North Dakota, an explosion of costs. And then you'd be off from your price forecast anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to have the price to justify all the capital that would take. I mean, we're looking at, you know, six to seven million a well. One of the reasons it's only six to seven million is because the service companies really lowered their rates, you know, when the price of oil fell. So what was the per well cost like before the price crash in middle 2014? They were higher. Okay. You know, they may be up around eight million. Okay. But we're also investing, you know, more into technology for these wells. So intrinsically, they're, they're putting in more, more water, more propane drilling longer horizontal laterals. So if, if the rig cost went back up to what it was two or three years ago, we're probably talking, you know, $9 million wells, you know, with the in- increased technological effort that's going into them. So when EIA does come out with its assumptions underlying this 2016 forecast, do we think that they're going to answer these questions that when we go looking at the assumptions particularly for like a play level like the Bakken, we're going to find out just how many wells they think can be drilled and how productive the wells are and what the decline rate of the wells will be. They'll certainly have an estimate of, of the number of wells, you know, the well density, the aerial extent, not necessarily decline rates. Well, if they don't have the decline rates, then I guess they're not going to be publishing like a, a full type curve for each well. So what are they going to be report? Just like the initial production rate and that's it? Or Well, you know, every year the oil and gas assumption document is about 20 pages long. And there's a table of all of the different play areas, well density, number of square miles of the play that you can calculate how many locations there are an average productivity. So that'll probably be what we'll get. It's just that table which is updated. You know, I, I use that table from 2015 in my reports. This okay. year. It's going to be interesting to see what that table looks like if they get around to publishing. Well, you might have to write another report then to compare that side by side <laughs> with the other one. So as your report shows, underlying EIA's production forecast is a price forecast that's pretty bullish. It sees oil going back to around $80 a barrel by 2020 and $100 a barrel before 2030. That's obviously considerably higher than the futures market is currently forecasting or that a lot of the typical um, data agencies, I don't think Wood McKenzie or IHS or any of those other agencies are forecasting a price recovery like that. So do they explain at how they arrived at that price forecast? Well, you know, they have a basically what they call a national energy modeling system. So they you know, put a bunch of things like GDP growth forecast into that, different parameters. And I you know, push a button and, and they get a price forecast. It's a bit of a black box, so I'm not sure that we'll see any 
kind of details beyond that in terms of how they arrived at it. So your report compares production estimates for the top nine major plays plus an other category for all the rest. And you do that for AEO 2016 to AEO 2014 and AEO 2015. And you find that the AEO 2016 estimates are pretty different both up and down from 2014 and 2015 forecasts. you have any idea why? You know, again, it all boils down to the assumptions. And in actual fact, the bulk of them are up in AEO 2016 with the exception of the Eagle Ford, which is down a little bit. But you know, most of the plays are, are up. Hence, you get the 31% increase over 12 months between 2015 and 2016. But EIA doesn't say why they think that things are going to be so much better in this report than they did in the last two years? Not in detail, no. And the assumptions document will, will tell the tale you know, when that's released. Okay. Hopefully it'll be released before AEO 2017 comes out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully. So you also find that the AEO 2016 estimates for ultimate recovery are, in some cases, considerably higher than USGS's mean estimate of technically recoverable resources, especially for the Bakken. And, you know, it's never really been that clear to me if there's a relationship or what that relationship might be between EIA's technically recoverable resource estimates and the estimates from USGS. Do you know like what the connection might be between those, or do they explain why their estimate for this is, is higher than USGS's? Not that I've seen. You know, in general, I would you know, view the USGS work as being more credible than what the EIA does. And typically, they're lower. Like for the Marcellus, the, the USGS came out with an 84 TCF number. Now the EIA is don't have it exactly offhand what their estimate for the Marcellus is, but it's over 200 TCF. Wow, so it's probably more like triple. Yeah, the USGS estimate. But is there any like I don't know formal methodological relationship between EIA's estimates for TRR and USGS's, or or not? Are they totally separate? I think that they are totally separate. I don't know how the EIA does it. I mean, these are both U.S. government agencies. This seems like a very strange way to do things. Yeah, it does, when you <laughs> consider the importance of, of getting it right. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this has puzzled me for years, for literally many years. And I think I've even looked to try to find any explanation published by either agency as to why their estimates don't line up or why there's no apparent relationship between them. I mean, do you have any insight on that at all? Well, the the people that do the USGS estimates are, are PhD-level statisticians and geologists for the most part. So, I, you know, I would put my money on them in terms of having a more rigorous methodology. When it comes to the EIA, I'm not exactly sure how they come up with those numbers. Huh. Okay. I, I, I'm just looking at the Marcellus now. And their 2016 report, they assume recovering 215 TCF from 2014 to 2040. And the USGS's mean estimate was 84 TCF of undiscovered 
technically recoverable. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so EIA is basically forecasting about two and a half times as much gas is going to be recovered from the Marcellus as USGS thinks exists in undiscovered, technically recoverable resources. Right, and in fact, more than the EIA's estimate of of unproved, technically recoverable resources. Wow. Yep. Plus the fact that the Marcellus is exiting 2040 at, at near all-time record levels, you know, which indicates that there's got to be, you know, another 100 or 200 TCF of recoverable gas there as well. Wow. I mean... <sighs> This is just so unsatisfying, you know, if you actually care about the numbers. I'm not saying that EIA's forecasts here are wrong, because I don't know. I don't have any ability to know. I am saying that it's very unsatisfying the way they've gone about justifying or explaining their assumptions here. I mean, this is, uh, they're saying things that clearly don't match with what they have said in the past and what other agencies have said. And they're not explaining the divergence. Yeah, and what the fundamentals of the well production data say. Exactly. If you you care to go to that depth. Yeah. But the worrying thing is industry is making policy based on this. We're building LNG export facilities, assuming cheap, abundant gas for the foreseeable future. And if those forecasts aren't realistic, all that capital investment is, is just stranded. And it puts longer-term energy security at risk. You know, all the decisions that are being made now based on those assumptions. That's a great point. And, I mean, I have to assume that the companies that are stepping up to spend a couple billion dollars on a new LNG export facility have to be reasonably confident (laughs) about the assumptions on which they're basing that investment. I I certainly hope they've got more to go on than this EIA forecasting. It's actually more like $10 to build a big LNG export plant up front. And the way some of those projects are working, though, it's basically cost plus. So all they're doing is providing a service, you know, whatever the domestic price of gas is they add X cost to that. So they're just providing a service to liquefy the gas and ship it. And, you know, whatever the input price is, is, is a responsibility of the people that signed the contracts to export that LNG. So there's not that much risk in price spikes to the actual LNG facility owners. You know, that risk is on the the people that sign long-term take-or-pay contracts. Hmm. Well, good luck to them, I guess. So I think the bottom line on both of these reports is that you think there are problems with EIA's National Energy Modeling System, known as NEMS, its uh, acronym. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us what you think the issues are there? Well, you know, I've tried to go through as objectively as I can to look at what might a reasonable outlook be. Just to kind of factor in, a, you know, a reality check, which is what my reports are called, that all may not be quite as sweet as we think. And that should be a, a wake-up call, 
you know, to utilities that are converting to gas big time and the likely future prices of electricity. If price spikes, which is quite likely to happen. And if you look at what happened in the Northeast a couple years ago in January, the price of gas spiked to a hundred dollars a million BTUs from about, you know, $2 is what it's selling for today in the Northeast. So historically natural gas has been a, a pretty volatile commodity as recently as mid 2008, it was selling for over $12. So to assume it's going to be $5 out to 2040 is a yeah, pretty optimistic assumption in my view. Well, clearly, and with no volatility in their price forecast. Right. Making price forecasts is a bit of a mugs game. <laughs> and volatility is a pretty hard thing to forecast. If you're going to get the gas out of the ground at the levels that they're projecting, prices are going to have to go a lot higher than $5. And because of the fact that I mentioned right at the beginning that five shale gas plays produce three quarters of of the gas that the EIA is planning on recovering by 2040. You know, we're basically drilling off the best parts of those plays as we speak. So that tells you that longer term prices are going to have to go up and supply likely go down even with considerably higher prices. So that, that should all be factored into the energy decisions that we're making today. Well, and this is really the point where we have to point out that most of the additional demand for gas in the U.S. anyway for the last couple of years has been driven by the power sector. That gas is being used to generate electricity. And if the price of gas rises substantially from where it is now, gas-fired power generation is going to be out of the money relative to renewables, certainly, because right now renewables are already knocking on the door of gas-fired power as close to price parity. And it'll probably become more expensive than coal, depending on how high it goes. I mean, I think coal-fired power now in the U.S. goes for around six, seven cents per kilowatt hour. Gas-fired power is closer to five cents a kilowatt hour. If we double the price of gas or even more, as I guess it would have to be given this forecast that you're looking at, if, if gas prices go, go up to, uh, let's say, $8 per million BTU and gas-fired power, just kind of making numbers off the top of my head here, but let's say gas-fired power goes back to eight cents per kilowatt hour, you would have to expect that we're going to start shutting down these gas fire generators. We might go back to coal and renewables are going to just absolutely run away with all new capacity. Like we're not going to be building any new gas fired power plants at that point. It's all going to be renewables. So that alone undercuts this notion of having a higher gas price in the future that would justify this production. Yeah, well, it's even it's even a little worse than that because we're actually shutting down coal plants and dismantling them so they're gone. So we're creating an inelastic demand for gas. I mean, if you want power, you've got to use the gas. There's no longer an alternative with coal. You know, there is now, but that's gradually going away. Right? 
you know, right now gas is more competitive than coal. But, you know, a lot of that coal capacity is, is coming offline. So there's really no choice unless you have an alternative, such as renewables. So you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place if, if you get a big gas price spike and you have no alternatives to it. Yeah, I mean, you just have to spike grid power prices and that's it. Yeah, which is exactly what happened in New England. Right. Now, we should note that since that polar vortex freeze that you're talking about there in New England, during which, by the way, several coal plants couldn't function because the piles of coal actually froze solid and they couldn't, (laughs) they literally couldn't get it into the furnace. Since then, we've built quite a bit of new pipeline capacity in the Northeast and some new storage capacity. So, I think the hope, at least within the industry and the utility sector in the Northeast, is that they've got more of a buffer now and more of a fallback position than they did in the polar vortex. But of course, it's not unlimited. Yeah, you're exactly right. There has been a lot of of pipeline capacity built. And, you know, the Utica is a play that has really evolved quite, quite rapidly in the last couple of years, feeding into the same market as the Marcellus. But people have ambitions. Canadians in Nova Scotia are looking at building an LNG export facility for some of that northeast U.S. gas. So, you know, people are adding demands for that as well as we speak. Yeah, this whole LNG export thing really deserves a whole nother discussion because... I mean, these are, as you say, very expensive plants. These export facilities, these liquefaction facilities and and export terminals are very, very expensive, billions of dollars. So it takes a long time to build them. And they were, all the ones that we're building now were on the drawing board back when you could expect to fetch 10 or $12 per million BTU for the gas when it landed in, let's say, Asia. That's no longer the case. Gas prices have fallen so hard around the world that, as far as I know, you can't actually ship a cargo of gas from the U.S. to Asia at a profit right now. No, you can't. Absolutely. You know, when everybody was really keen on LNG back in 2013, the price of LNG landed in Japan was $18. I just checked it, but now it's below 6 well, and in essence, to to get LNG from say New Orleans to Asia is somewhere between five and six U.S. just for the liquefaction and shipping costs. So if it costs you four at the terminal on the Gulf Coast, and it costs you six to ship it, you need ten just to break even at selling for for less than six. Right. So does it make a lot of sense right now? Well, I got to wonder what they're thinking up there with that export terminal in Nova Scotia then. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we'll see where that goes. I don't think it's going to go very far. If you look around the world at what's happened with gas production, in fact, gas production has gone up more rapidly in the rest of the world than it has in North America. So, I, you know, I think that the low prices in Asia and Europe are, are probably going to be here for a while. And I think most of that new gas production that you're talking about has actually been Australia, Indonesia, and Russia, right? Yeah, a lot of new LNG out of Australia. Yeah. 
for sure, some out of Russia. But, you know, overland pipelines from Russia to China. You know, if you look at the thermodynamics of LNG, it takes about 20% of the gas just to provide power for the liquefaction and shipping and regasification part of the process. So, you know, from an energy conservation point of view, LNG is a is an expensive way to move gas, both in terms of money and in terms of energy. A 20% parasitic load right off the top, basically. Yeah, right off the top. Hmm. Interesting. So I suppose we should take just a minute here before we wrap up to talk about the Wolf Camp Shale in the Permian Basin, since that's been in the news lately. I explained the basics in the news segment to episode 31. It was basically a reassessment by the U.S. Geological Survey of the Wolf Camp Shale, which suggested that it could hold as much as 20 billion barrels of oil, 16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, and 1.6 billion barrels of natural gas liquids. But contrary to many press reports, it wasn't actually a discovery, but rather a reassessment of an old play that we've been drilling for a long time that has some 7,000 wells currently producing on it. And the USGS estimate was really just for a 50% probability of undiscovered, technically recoverable resources that could be recovered from the play if it were redeveloped using horizontal drilling and fracking. But we don't actually know yet what price it would take to make these undiscovered resources into commercially viable proved reserves. And we might not know that for years. So is there anything you want to add on the Wolf Camp story? Well, you're right. You know, I had a, another look at that just a couple of days ago. And there's been over 13,000 wells drilled since the 50s in the Wolf Camp. It's produced a billion barrels of oil since the 50s and about 5 trillion cubic feet of gas. So, you know, we've known about it for a long time. So it's not a, it's not a, a new discovery as the press made it out to be. You know, as you say, it's a very thick formation with, with several benches in it that uh, look like they can be developed with horizontal drilling and fracking. But what would it cost? That's the key. And the USGS provides an estimate of the, the ultimate recovery of wells, you know, by bench in the wolf camp for their uh, resource assessment. So I actually, I, I took Art Berman's numbers, you know, 7 million per well, his operating costs of about $12 a barrel. I looked at the EURs from the USGS study. The EUR is, uh, just, just for people who don't know, it's the uh, estimated ultimate recovery. Per well, right? Yeah. And just, you know, crank some costs. Like, it turns out you need to drill 169,000 wells. <laughs> at 7 million each <laughs> to produce 20 billion barrels of oil with a $12 per barrel operating cost. So if you assume the price of oil is $45 and there's 20 billion barrels that might be recoverable, that's 900 billion. But just to get it out of the ground to drill those 169,000 wells, you'd need 1.4 trillion. So, you know, just on a straight up capital investment costs, you lose 500 billion. And that doesn't count the royalties and, and any taxes that you'd have to pay. So, um, you know, I wouldn't count on getting that oil out anytime soon. Although certainly, you know, the Wolf 
cap it is producing oil and it, it has gone up quite a bit in terms of production and it will continue to produce oil but i certainly wouldn't hold my breath on the 20 billion considering you know what it's going to take in terms of wells capital costs and so forth and again i mean it just makes no sense to think about these kinds of numbers you know recovering 20 billion barrels from this play over how many decades into the future without also considering what's the likely demand going to be and that has to be based on the number of vehicles that are still burning petroleum and that has to take into account what's your forecast for electric vehicle adoption likewise it doesn't make any sense to talk about these kinds of shale production forecasts that you've been looking at here play by play without thinking about what's the demand likely to be from the power sector and you can't think about that without understanding the growth of renewables and the price of renewables relative to fossil fuel generation and so on and yet none of this kind of integrative modeling is actually being done not that i'm aware of eia isn't doing it nobody's doing it no that's right you know and that's exactly why i'm I'm interested in trying to put together an, an objective evaluation of of these kinds of forecasts because they're so important you know people are are making huge investments based on them. So, you know, the closer they are to reality, the less disruption down the road there's going to be in terms of sustainable energy future. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you uh, <laughs> taking the time to explain some of this for us and actually, you know, just doing the work in the first place because, as you say, uh, it's extremely rare to find anybody who's looking at this stuff at a play-by-play level and really explaining it. But I got to say, it's a little scary to see the cover pulled back on this and to see how just wacky some of the forecasts are underneath the the cover here. This is unsettling. Yeah. You know, if you look at uh, who has the resources and who has the loudest megaphone, it's really industry investor presentations, you know, the next quarter. Government should be a little more objective, but they seem to be pretty optimistic. Well, and yeah. The politicians that are making the, the policy decisions, you know, don't really have a grounding in how believable some of this information actually is. Well, especially now that we have, uh, or I guess we're going to have President Trump, and he's apparently been talking to people like Harold Hamm from the CEO of Continental Resources and uh, Rex Tillerson from ExxonMobil to uh, play key roles in his administration, which adds even less confidence to the realism of our plans going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Scary stuff, man. This is trippy. <laughs> Maybe when, when EIA does come out with the assumptions underneath its AEO 2016, you can write a little report once again, sort of explaining it for the layperson, and maybe we can get you back on the show at that point to talk about it. Yeah, no, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what those assumptions are, Chris. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Dave. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. That was geoscientist David Hughes, president of Global Sustainability Research and a fellow of the Post Carbon Institute. Frankly, I find it disturbing that EIA has seen fit to publish its AEO 2016 in its current form, without an accompanying explanation of its assumptions, particularly given the fact that in so many cases, they are projecting the recovery of more resources than their own estimates say might exist. 
Since only a few analysts like Dave are going to go to the trouble to get the play-by-play -play data from EIA to even discover that fact, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal to them. But as Dave said, the mere fact that policymakers and significant investors look to EIA's forecasts for guidance should call for a higher standard of proof and diligence in its forecasting. Now, I don't want to bash EIA here, and if an EIA analyst would like to come on the show and clear up some of this confusion, I'd be happy to have them on. I understand that theirs is a difficult job that's constrained in many ways, and that some of those ways are not obvious to the casual observer. And for all we know, they have perfectly good assumptions underlying the AEO 2016 forecasts. But they are not explained yet, and just putting these forecasts out there like this, with such obvious disconnects with reality as we know it, even if you don't have access to the play-by-play -play data, seems irresponsible at best. And underneath all of the details that Dave has unearthed in his reports about EIA's resource estimates and its production and price forecasts, there is this lingering uncertainty about the National Energy Modeling System, NEMS, the black box that produces these forecasts. Many independent analysts have said that NEMS is too opaque and difficult to use, and EIA has acknowledged a fair amount of criticism that has been leveled at it. But, at least on the face of the data that Dave is presenting, it sounds like NEMS is really failing to even approximate reality. And considering the importance of its role in EIA's work, that is reason for serious concern. The fracking phenomenon may indeed produce more miracles in the future. But based on the careful criticism that Dave presents in these two new reports of his, I have very little confidence in EIA's latest forecasts. We asked, and you answered. We've heard from enough of you to convince us that the Energy Transition Show can be supported by subscriptions only. No ads, no sponsors, no advertorials, no commercial influences. Just us giving you what you've told us you want. So we're taking the plunge. Starting in 2017, the Energy Transition Show will be 100% supported by members because we think that's the best way to provide unconditioned, in-depth, apolitical reporting on energy issues. For just $60 a year, subscribers will get new episodes twice a month, the same frequency of the show thus far, plus other occasional goodies just for subscribers. That's 5 bucks a month for several hours of thoughtful, handcrafted commentary, or, if you like, the equivalent of buying me a pint of IPA once a month just to say thanks, and I do love my IPA. For listeners who aren't quite ready to sign up for an annual subscription, we will also be offering a monthly option at $10 a month, and to celebrate our launch, until the end of February, we're offering special launch pricing for the monthly option at just $5 a month. So subscribers who sign up for the monthly option during the first two months will get the same deal as annual subscribers, but with the option to cancel at any time. 
You can subscribe with any major credit card, and both the monthly and annual subscriptions will auto-renew. So that's the deal. We hope you'll continue to support us as we make the leap to making the show truly sustainable. Whether the show flies or dies now is truly up to you. And thanks for the support so far. And now a quick look at some recent news items, starting with four good news stories about coal. Item one, the government of Finland has announced a plan to eliminate coal-fired power by 2030, which would make it the first country to outlaw coal power entirely. The country currently gets just under 10% of its total energy from coal and about 40% of its electricity from fossil fuels. The plan also calls for obtaining 50% of its total energy needs from renewables by 2030, with a long-term goal of becoming 100% renewable. The use of imported petroleum products for domestic purposes would be cut in half by 2030, and using fuel oil for heating buildings would be gradually phased out. The share of biofuel energy and transportation fuel would be raised to 30% by 2030, and the country will try to swap out its gasoline-powered cars for electric vehicles more rapidly, with an aim of having a quarter of a million electric cars by 2030, five times as many as the remaining gasoline-powered cars. Item 2. The government of Canada has announced that it will speed up plans to virtually eliminate coal power by 2030 to help it meet its emissions targets under the Paris Agreement. The plan would raise the share of emissions-free power in Canada from 80% today to 90% by 2030. The government said it would support the transition by using the Canada Infrastructure Bank public-private financing mechanism, but did not offer additional details. According to a report called Out with the Coal, In with the New, a joint production of groups including the Pembina Institute, the David Suzuki Foundation, and the Canadian Public Health Association, says Canada currently has 34 coal-burning plants and that the acceleration will avoid 1,008 premature deaths, 871 emergency room visits, and other health care and lower productivity costs, amounting to nearly $5 billion between 2015 and 2035. Item 3. The government of France has announced that it will shut down all of its coal-fired power plants by 2023, with President Francois Hollande emphasizing the importance of the world-reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. As with Canada and Finland, France's objective is not hugely ambitious. The country gets less than 8% of its electricity from all fossil fuels combined, and more than 75% of its electricity from nuclear. However, the optics are still important. The more countries that deliberately eliminate coal from their power mixes, the harder it will be for the remaining countries, like the U.S., to continue burning this stuff. Item 4. According to data compiled by Coal Swarm, some 750 gigawatts of proposed coal capacity was canceled worldwide between 2010 and 2016. About 500 gigawatts of the 750 were canceled in India and China. And according to Green Tech Media, 150 gigawatts of global capacity projects were canceled in the first half of this year alone. The EIA projects that U.S. coal-fired generation will actually increase slightly from 30% of electricity this year to 31% next year as natural gas prices rise and make coal more economical. But all signs indicate that the global building spree of coal-fired power plants is all but over. And finally, alert listener Andrew passed along a thoughtful commentary published in Nature by Andy Parker and Oliver Geddon titled No Fudging on Engineering. The article points out, and quite rightly in my view, 
that the parties to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change have been a bit disingenuous in pushing off on the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the near impossible task of figuring out scenarios that will keep the world's projected warming below 2 degrees C. The IPCC responded to the dilemma by including Carbon Capture and Sequestration, CCS, in its fifth assessment report. But policymakers and climate economists have not actually questioned the practical feasibility of actually implementing enough carbon-removing capacity to remove an estimated 500 gigatons of CO2. The authors call this disconnect a, quote, co-production of irresponsibility, a harsh but fair statement. They go on to call for policymakers to get serious about figuring out just how much actual carbon removal capacity they can build and are willing to fund in addition to the usual strategies like building more renewable energy capacity and, most importantly, geoengineering via spraying aerosol sulfates into the upper atmosphere, a.k.a. solar engineering. Listeners who haven't checked out episode 26 yet where we discuss geoengineering might want to do so at this point. In any case, if the authors are correct in saying that solar geoengineering is the only known way to quickly stop, slow, or even reverse global temperature rises, then they are also correct to admonish policymakers to confront that alternative head-on in an open and transparent dialogue and not to continue embedding theoretical solutions that have no hope of feasibility into their scenarios and pretending that somehow they'll get built. It's time to get serious about what our real solutions are. I'll link to that article in the show notes, and I encourage listeners to read it. This episode concludes the first full calendar year of the Energy Transition Show, and it marks the last regular free episode of the podcast. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to all of you for choosing to spend your time with us thus far, and I hope every one of you will continue to join us for more bi-weekly wonkery when we switch to our paid subscription model in 2017. Your ideas and feedback on the show so far have been invaluable, both for their content and simply because they have encouraged us to keep going. We are taking a big leap into the unknown now. After all, most podcasts are free to listeners, and their costs are paid for by some other organization or by advertisers. But we don't believe either of these routes are right for the Energy Transition Show, and we very much hope that with your modest financial support, we can continue to produce not only the high-quality, thoughtful show you have enjoyed so far, but can significantly improve it as well. We hope you'll stay with us as we journey into a new year that is certain to be full of surprises and challenges and into a new business model that's designed to produce honest commentary, unfiltered and unbiased by anyone else's commercial interests. So here's to a new phase for the show, a new year, and a renewed hope for the future. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.